All right, people, let's do this one last time. You know who I am. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. 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 I'm Spider-Man. I'm not the only one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a very special Geek Explained Extra series that we're calling Spidey December, where we are going through every single theatrically released Spider-Man film in the lead up to Spider-Man No Way Home. We've done the first Spider-Man film. We've done Spider-Man 2, arguably one of the best Spider-Man films. And now we are taking a sharp right turn because we are diving into Spider-Man three and i am of course joined by my amazing friends chris carter hello everyone and aj kincaid hello hello are you guys ready to talk about some jazz oh no <laughs> now dig on this you guys ready because we're talking about spider-man 3 which was released mm. in 2007 Directed by Sam Raimi, who else? Written by Sam Raimi, Ivan Raimi, and Alvin Sargent. Now, this film has a lot around it. It has its detractors. It has its supporters. Do you remember seeing this film for the first time? I'm going to go to AJ first. Uh, I do. I do. I remember being, um, I must have been maybe like, 14 years old at the time and i was so jazzed to see spider-man 3 i was so excited to finally see venom on the big screen it was everything that i wanted it was gonna be so dope it was the black symbiote suit storyline my favorite spider-man storyline at that point i was so jazzed to go in and then in the beginning of before the movie even started i saw one of the greatest trailers that ever existed the yeah. screen went entirely black and little bits of blue fire started to engulf a bat symbol while Heath Ledger's Joker started monologuing <laughs> in the background. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Exactly, exactly. And that laugh and just everything. And that little teaser right before for the Dark Knight about to came out fucking hyped me up all the way through that movie. The first time I saw that, it was a breeze. I was just like, yeah, it was fine. It was great. It was great. But the more I started thinking about it, and the next time I saw it, it was not a good time. <laughs> Chris, how about you? Um, I don't remember the exact day that I saw it. I'll say that. I don't remember seeing it. I'm sure I did see it in the theaters because you know we're, we're right in that, that train of really enjoying Spider-Man 2. So I am fairly certain that I did see it in the theaters, but I can't tell you. Well, I can tell you that I didn't like it. I mean, I, I can, I think we're, I think, you know, we'll get to that, the, the, the nitty gritty later, but it was in the theater. It was unmemorable for probably a bunch of different reasons, but um, it was, <laughs> I don't have the, the story that, uh, that AJ has. I'll say that because um, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation, but we all know I think we all know how I feel about Chris Nolan's uh, trilogy. And I think we all kind of feel the same way, but for this film, um, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. 
Enough said. I mean, it's it's interesting because I do remember seeing this in the theaters and I was actually met by a different trailer that came out. I remember seeing something that was a little new to me at the time. I'd heard of the character before and I wasn't really sure exactly how it was going to work on screen. But I remember distinctly seeing a trailer for 2008's Iron Man in front of this and seeing that trailer i was like okay but he's not spider-man like what are we doing here and i distinctly remember when i first saw this film loving it i loved this film when i first saw it and this was of the era where like I where like the tie-in video games came out like a month mm-hmm. before the actual movie. So I had played through half of this tie-in game before the movie came out. So I had a pretty good sense on what was going on. Cause I was a dumb kid and I didn't, you know, get affected by spoilers in the way that I now do as a grown adult. And <laughs> It was very interesting going back. Every every time that I've gone back to watch this film, I found reasons to dislike it more, and I found reasons to like it more. It is a very interesting film with a lot of moving parts. And I think this has to do a lot with everything that went into the film. Because this film, Spider-Man 3, was given a release date before production even started. They After the success, the opening weekend success of Spider-Man 2, the fact that it was the highest rated superhero film that Robert uh, or Roger Ebert ever gave, this was a phenomenon at this point. Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, Kirsten Dunst as MJ, everybody off of the success of willem dafoe off the success of alfred molina this film and this franchise could do no wrong where the x-men films you know decided to stick with the dark gritty and tried to stay within the more realistic area spider-man said we are just gonna go balls the wall with color style and substance And so there was a lot of pressure on not just the studio, but especially the filmmakers. And one thing that has been made abundantly clear in the years since this film came out is that Sam Raimi, who directed all three of these films, did not want to do Venom. Venom was not in the original plan. He wanted to do a film about the Sandman and possibly the Vulture. Possibly but mostly Sandman because Raimi grew up on the original Ditko and Lee uh, uh, stories. He grew up on reading them when the transition went over to John Romita Sr. He loves the classic characters and the classic villains. And so there was a bit of a pushback with one Avi Arad. Now we haven't really talked about Avi Arad as much in this series so far, but Avi Arad has been kind of the driving force when it comes to Spider-Man on screen. He's been the guy who is always in control. He's the guy who all of the decisions get made with his consent or not. And he made the executive decision that he wants Venom in this film. 
Venom is Aviarod's favorite Spider-Man character. And when Sam Raimi came to them with a script saying, we're going to do Sandman, Aviarod was, and this is legit, like this has been an interview, Sam Raimi has given this, Aviarod says, you're being selfish. Because you want to do another one of your favorite characters while the fans are suffering because they want Venom. And so Sam Raimi basically got bullied into putting Venom into this film. He did not want to. You can kind of tell throughout the film that he didn't want to put Venom in this. And someone he also didn't want to put in this, Gwen Stacy. That was a purely producer driven move they wanted to put gwen stacy in to form a love triangle between him mj and gwen and this turned into a whole thing so that brings us to the new cast now there are three people that i want to highlight in this and first off just mentioned her bryce dallas howard as gwen stacy bryce dallas howard is actually a good actress when she wants to be She's the daughter of Ron <laughs> Howard. I've seen her in good stuff. I enjoyed her in Black Mirror. She's she was really good in Black Mirror. She's in the Jurassic World movies. Jurassic World, yeah. Um, but she's a better director. I'll, she, I'll just agreed, say that. Agreed. And I think that if it was given, you know, if there was no Mary Jane, and they just brought in Bryce Dallas Howard as Gwen Stacy, this could have worked. In in two thousand. <laughs> In the year 2001. Yeah, but like here in 2007 where they have tried really hard to get you to love Toby and Kirsten together, bringing in a third love interest or a second love interest doesn't really jive. Now, I mentioned it before, the Sandman. Thomas Hayden Church is a powerhouse actor. He is absolutely committed to every single role that he is in. How did you guys feel about Thomas Hayden Church as the Sandman in this particular film? Chris? Well, I actually, I enjoy the actor a lot. It's funny. There was a a sitcom called Wings that came out that probably nobody remembers because they're probably way too young. You remember Wings, AJ? I remember Wings. What? So he played like the dumb, I think the, the, the stereotypical dumb mechanic. I loved him in that. And I think at a show on USA afterwards, yeah, Tom, I have followed his career uh, closely. And so when he was included, um, I, I, I didn't know what to expect as the character in the film. He's very grounded. And you give, you know, a character who's, I don't, and I, again, I got to preface this by saying that for the people that don't know, I, I don't, my comic book knowledge of source material is the shallowest of the pool in this in this area. So, <laughs> so for me, knowing I don't, I don't know if that man's a good guy or bad guy or one of kind of you know the middle ground um, in the comics. But the way they played him in the film, it felt like he was kind of a middle ground, and he had to make these thing these choices and do these things that he was doing that probably people kind of looked at him as the bad guy. Which is there was kind of a redeeming factor in him in the very end of it too. By the way, um, I didn't hate it. I hate the way that the story kind of was never really impacted. and it just felt super convoluted. But again, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. I like Thomas Hayden Church, and I actually enjoyed his iteration of Sandman from what we from what we saw of it. For sure, AJ. Oh, I I 
every time I rewatch this movie, it's my favorite part about this movie is Sandman. And I wish we got more of Sandman. Like, I really can't stand James Franco in this movie. Every time I come back to it, I can't stand James Franco. He is Franco doing in this the movie. most possible at all times. <laughs> he is doing like way too much. Like, the, like James Franco, like next level, is literally waving his hands in every scene. Like, that I is the next level. I could too commit much. to a character in the way that James Franco decides <laughs> to commit to Harry Osborne in this film. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get we'll, to that. We'll though. get to it for sure. Um, no, but but Sandman and um, I can't remember what the actor's name. Um, again, Thomas Hayden Church. Thomas Hayden Church is such a good actor. I wish we got. I I don't know what where he is now. I, I and like that's on me for just like not knowing like what he's like what he's doing. Maybe he's a producer. Maybe he's a director. Who knows? He just kind of feels like he's disappeared a little. He's bit, actually but... literal sand right now. Literal sand. In that. <laughs> He's, he went to the beach and then just disappeared. Um, no, I like, again, Sandman, like that bit um, that he does where he actually turns into Sandman is again, still really kind of hauntingly beautiful. And the fact that Raimi pulls off a really, really relatable and like kind of caring um, bad guy that yeah. you actually feel sorry for that. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more of to more appreciate that is I think really genius. Yeah. And, and at, at this point in time, we hadn't seen that. You make a great point, Agent. We haven't really seen that type of air quote villain. So I, I really love your point with that. So yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I, no, no I mean, I'm, my only like kind of argument to that is I, I think that like there's almost like he's like Sam Raimi's trying in every movie to make his villains relatable. Like, Willem, like especially Green Goblin at the very end. I almost said Willem Dafoe as the character for Green Goblin. No, Willem Dafoe is Will, Willem Dafoe is a goblin man. That is Maybe. who he is, especially yeah, as he's I mean, gotten older. Especially as he's gotten older, it's true. It's true. Um, but like at the very end, when Green Goblin gets stabbed and he looks at Peter and says, "Don't tell Harry," and then dies, is so heartbreaking every time. Doc Ock's entire arc is like so heartbreaking and so yeah. sad. And so like he, when Sam Raimi like understands the characters, he knocks them out of the park for how they need to be in movies. And like, you can just tell so hard he had no idea what to do with Venom. He had no idea. Like he, he was given just like, hey, this character is like an anti-evil Peter Parker. And he's just like, just like, this is the most boring thing ever. Absolutely. And I, that perfectly brings us to our third casting choice, which is that 70s shows Topher Grace as Eddie Brock. Now, Chris, I want to I want to dive in with this on you real quick, because oh. you've mentioned that you are not a comic book aficionado. Yeah. Um, AJ and I happen to happen to be uh, a little waist deep in comic book knowledge. More like or... Marinara Trench Deep. The Marinara <laughs> Trench Deep yes. is the level yes. of knowledge we're talking about, guys. Let's but, you know. Chris, if you had never heard of Eddie Brock before and you were going just based off of this movie, how would you describe Eddie Brock in one sentence? Silly. Uh, uh, neither i would i I would like it's 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 that and first of all let me preface by saying i was never a tover grace fan like i don't i don't know why he gets casted in anything alongside (laughs) with you know um i can't think of the guy in suicide squad eric help me out uh, oh uh, chris's favorite actor joel kinnaman yeah thank you i don't know why these people i'm sure they're wonderful people i don't know why they get casted to do these roles though 
I, I could yeah. never take Dylan. He was great as Jared Leto in Black Mirror. <laughs> he played a great I mean, Jared Leto in Black Mirror. Topher Grace? Yes. I haven't seen that yet. Oh, you need to watch yeah. that episode. Oof. It's incredible. <laughs> Interesting. You know, but Black Mirror, I think, from what I've seen, has they do so many things well because they take themselves seriously. And I think in Sam Raimi films, you mentioned it, Eric, and we've talked about it prior. They're kind of silly films. They, they, they take themselves seriously to a point, but, but I mean, not overly seriously. And I think that unfortunately, maybe this character kind of fell into that and possibly because the director didn't know what to do with him. Cause as, as a spectator, as an audience member, I didn't know what to think of him. I just thought he was silly and goofy and noncommittal. And it just, he just rubbed, it, it just, it just didn't resonate with me. If there's a, if there's a flaw when you're making a film and you think that this person, you don't like them, you don't hate them, why are they there? And that's kind of how I felt about, you know, and, and again, it's Topher Grace's portrayal of this character because now we have Tom Hardy's portrayal yeah. of Eddie Brock, which is very different, right? So I think that the the, the way the story is- you mean is Venom. Venom. I'm, I'm sorry, yes, of course. So so for me, just to long-winded answer your question, I hated the silly portrayal of it. I, I really did. And I was excited to see Venom. For what little I know about Venom. it, just to have an anti-hero- like, you know, we see, um, it's like Sabretooth and Wolverine, I think. That's the closest thing, or Magneto and and, uh, and, uh, and and Xavier. Like, I like to see two arc, you know, a nemesis going against one, especially when we have the third title into it. I hated it, bro. I'm not going to lie. There's no way to sugarcoat <laughs> it. I fucking hate it. I really did. Sorry. Like, no, no, it's, you're it's, good. It's And it makes sense because AJ hit on something that was very profound, I think, and that in every single film so far, and including this one, Sam Raimi does his best work when he gets you to empathize with everyone, especially the villains. There are definitely, you know, stretches you have to make for Norman Osborn in the first film, but you know where he's coming from. You understand why he does the things that he does. In Spider-Man 2, Otto Octavius's portrayal by Alfred Molina is one of the most sympathetic and tragic villains that we've seen in a comic book film. And even the Sandman here, where they literally pull, they literally took the character Sandman and used dark magic to turn him into a real person named Thomas Hayden Church, ripped straight off of the comic page. Like, they gave him empathy. He is a guy yeah. trying to get uh trying to get money to save his sick child. He says he says it best, you know, I'm not a bad guy, I've just got really bad luck which is a killer line. And I think it's like, if you want to be able to describe a character in you know one sentence or less, that is a great descriptor to use if you're ever playing D&D and you need to talk about your character. But like, <laughs> that's why, you know, that's why Eddie Brock in this movie sticks out like a sore thumb because there's nothing, there's nothing sympathetic about him. They basically said, okay, what if Peter Parker was a dick? And then they made the movie where Peter Parker is also a dick in the movie. And so it kind of makes this character who is much closer to the Tom Hardy portrayal than the Topher Grace portrayal in the comics. Then they they decided to do this weird mirror thing, right? Where they're like, all right, Eddie Brock and Gwen Stacy are like the mirror image of like 
Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And it just, it doesn't work. Topher Grace, in fact, actually put on 25 pounds of muscle. And you can't tell at all. <laughs> oh, Topher, uh, I feel this, you, brother. I this feel poor you. guy. <laughs> did the best that he could and you know that he loved the character he left that 70s show left was, one of <laughs> left one of the most the thing that put him on the map yeah. to do this yeah. and could you could you imagine driving out a set go out from the set and like out from that like <laughs> like just that regular job and like the last season just going i'm making the right decision I am yeah. i am very excited for what the future holds there's nothing that spider-man here Spider-Man 3. This is going to be my big break. This right. is what's going to put me on the map. Now, as we uh, as we get into this, uh, AJ actually has to jet. So we are going to give you the floor, sir, before we get into the nitty gritty with me and Chris uh, detailing the rest of it. I want to give you the floor here. I know you've got a lot of thoughts about this film. Oh, yes. So give us your thoughts on the film, general thoughts, final thoughts, and give us your arbitrary geek explained rating out of 10 when you wrap it all up. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm so sorry, folks, that I have to miss all the fun times that are probably going to happen. This is what happens when you schedule too many things into your day. Um, but uh, too long didn't read. This movie tries... Sam Raimi, unfortunately, in this movie especially, is Peter Parker trying to save the day that is trying to save this movie. And ironically, with the intention that Venom was created for, which was to create the bully version of Spider-Man, every single time that our Sam Raimi tried to web-sling his way into a good movie, something smacked him down to bully him into a bad movie. This movie, unfortunately, is a dud. This movie doesn't work because it's seven different things trying to make sense and have no cohesive narrative or formula that can really tie it together and save it. There are moments of a good movie within here. And maybe if we did get the classic 1960s uh, like superhero movie that Sam Raimi wanted, like those sort of comics brought into the modern day would have been fantastic. And I'm so mad that we never got the lizard arc that would have been so complete. It would have been so good into a fourth movie. If we had actually gotten six movies, if we had Star Wars this, this would have been a fantastic masterpiece. This would have been amazing. Also, I've said this again, James Franco is terrible in this. James Franco is is like James James Franco to me has been like it, it's every time what is it for every one good performance you're getting five crappy ones and this like is just like the number one of of crappy performances <laughs> like somebody doesn't care and somebody's excited to die out and you can tell that they are ready to get that paycheck solid and in the bank so to this, I give this movie a solid two. This is a two movie. Hey, like nothing saves it. Nothing. The dance sequences, oh, like God. cringy and dorky as fuck. Which, oh God. And it's like, though, this is what a nerd thinks is cool. No, I, 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 I think maybe at one time. Yeah. But like this, this just hurts. This just hurts. And to that, I have to leave. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you next time. AJ, a man of many words and a man of many, many feelings. <laughs> uh, 
I I definitely uh, he will be missed for the rest of this. But good thing is you do have me and Chris for the rest of this. And I I think it's it's fascinating when you kind of go into the movie itself because the film starts off like as bombastic and blockbustery as it gets, right? right. Like right. the op I've talked about it every single time, but the opening sequences yeah. are incredible. The Alex Ross art, the score, they get that, you know, black suit theme going every single time something right. bad happens. Like it's incredible. Now, looking at all three of these opening sequences, how do you feel about this, you know, coming from just a viewing standpoint, just from a movie standpoint, rather than like a comic book fan standpoint? I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. You know, every time you talk about it, it gets me, it gets you excited just for what you know is coming up. And, and yeah. the marketing, you talked about the parallels between the two. Um, it's like what, and I, and I don't want to come off of, of the title sequence, but in the marketing itself, when you look at the posters, when you have yeah. Spider-Man suit paralleled with the black suit, and here we have the title sequence, they're they're leaning into it. And you have the Topher Grace marriage. It's like if you were just a little bit darker and a little bit more evil and, and were a little bit more self-centered, that's who you could be. And you kind of see that unfold in real in 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 real time, um, which is an interesting concept, I think. But when you get to the title sequences, it really kind of it's like your thesis paragraph, your thesis sentence, you mm -hmm. kind of understand the, the angle that, that we're going to take. And I, now I, I enjoy them. I thought the third one was my favorite. And again, coming from someone who really loved the second one, yeah. um, but, but that's before you get the rest of, of three and what happens and, and, and we'll get into it. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I truly enjoyed it. And the fact that you keep bringing it up tells me that you really enjoyed them too. Like, how do you feel when you oh, watch sure. it? Like, what does it do for you as an audience member and, and a fan? Well, it's interesting because like they they definitely first off, I have to give absolute credit to Alex Ross, who is the one who paints all of the imagery that you see mm. in the opening sequences for two and three. Um, Alex Ross designed the original look for the Spider-Man suit for that first movie that they didn't end up using. And so I think this was kind of like a make good for Alex Ross because <laughs> he is a prolific comic book artist. Kingdom Come is probably my favorite from the DC side of things that he's done. He's done uh, Earth X. He's in the Marvels. He is an icon when it comes to comic book art and getting to see that like interspersed in this as an yeah. opening, it feels blockbuster. It feels like an event. And that's really what the the openings do. They make you feel like this is an event. This is a big deal. This is like how you feel when you hear that first for Star Wars. Like so. this is like, okay, we're settling in. This is going to be like a thrill ride. And I think that's what this does in the same way that the X-Men movies also used to do that. Um, it's just, it sets you up to be like, this is a big deal. I am, you know, here for another chapter of this odyssey of this saga of this epic. And unfortunately the film doesn't really measure up to that, which is unfortunate. Right. Um, what is interesting that I think kind of pulls out of that as well is the score. Now, Danny Elfman was not brought in to do this score initially. He cited creative differences with Sam Raimi, and there was a whole big, you know, hullabaloo, a lot of drama. Oh. And so Danny Elfman ended up coming back in very late in the um, 
in the process of making this film. However, the score on this is impeccable, as the other films are. And one thing I really want to highlight is not just the score, but also the lack there of it. Because one thing that this film does well, and it doesn't do a lot well, but one thing that I think this film does well is it understands the importance of silence. Right. There are moments in this film where all sound just drops. There's no score. Sometimes there isn't even any like auxiliary sound and you feel the weight of the moment. Like there's, there's a scene, you know, it's the crane rescue when he right. asks to, to rescue, um, Gwen Stacy falling out of a building, there is a moment where it's like, it's just him maneuvering through the bits of the building that have fallen off. And it's, there's no score. There's no like triumphant thing. And you feel the weight of like the tension as he's like maneuvering through these pieces. There's a scene later on when he is big, bad emo Peter and they're in the jazz club and he strikes Mary Jane silence to let you understand the weight and the gravity of the situation. Like the score is one of the best parts of this film and the use of sound is one of the best parts of this film. And I mean, it's also got some killer jazz, man. (laughs) This film, this film's got the jazz. It's got the moves and it's, I, I find it really interesting. And Chris is a filmmaker, you know, how important, how important sound is and sound editing and how it, not just sets the stage, but also puts the audience in the shoes of the POV that the filmmaker is trying to elicit. Right. How do you, how important is sound when it comes to filmmaking, setting yeah. up a scene and kind of getting that audience engrossed? Yeah, it's incredible. And you, and you mentioned it. And, and when you want to strip everything away and, and talk about lack of sound first, and that's all, of course, that's a choice, right? Whether you're, it's a full orchestra or whether it's, it's nothing. And the biggest part of it is when you want someone to just feel, you take away all of their senses except for sight. And then that creates an emotional response because that's the only thing that you're pulling from or what you, what you can see. No. So when he hit her, it's interesting that they did that. And it was really the only thing they could do. But the choice of doing that um, really kind of, if, if you were in the theater, there wouldn't be a sound. You wouldn't be able to hear anything. And I think, obviously very intentional, but when you play it to that point, when you really drive something home with lack of sound, because we've been there, we've seen, you know, at this point, we've got jump scares, we've got, you know, high orchestra of notes, look up Hans Zimmer, look up uh, John Williams, littered throughout all of cinematic history, do you have these things? But when sound drops out, you can maybe, I don't know, count on a hand, you can think of where that, where a film has done that, and this film did it twice. Yeah. Partly, I will say, because I think that it, especially in the crane rescue, that's a great point that you brought that up. I think because they wanted people to understand what Peter was going through in that moment. He's just doing, it's not heroic. It's not tragic. It's just, it just is. Body's just moving. Exactly. And so we are with him in that moment. And so there, you know, because we've been in situations where like, Hell, if you have to throw a soundtrack on this, could have been a movie. But really, if you just if you've been sprinting, if you ever chased a cat or a dog or been chased, the only thing you can hear is yourself breathing. And sometimes you can't even hear that. That's how dialed into you are until the moment. And I really think that as a technique for filmmakers to use, that's scarcely used, but it's incredible when used right. And I and you're right. These two points, especially the part, and I love the crane rescue part of it. Yeah, super good. 
Yeah. Super good. And they could have gone one way, but because they went with no sound, it was such a strong creative choice. And that's, you know, that's Raimi knowing what he wants to do and show. And I think that was a great idea. It's fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. And when it comes to Raimi's choices and when it comes to Raimi knowing exactly what he wants, he didn't get his way in a lot when it comes to the production and the development of this film. But one of the things that he did get when it came to developing this film, when it came to the final product, is something that he laced throughout the other two films. It's the trinity of Peter, Harry, and MJ. It's always been a story about the three of them at its core. All three of them get development, for better or for worse, throughout the films. <laughs> and all of the emotion, all of the you know high-stakes soap opera drama always centers around the three of them. Right. Now... Let's just talk about it because AJ had very strong words about this. Harry Osborne. James Franco's Harry Osborne is doing the absolute most in this film. (laughs) More than was probably asked of him and more than was necessary. Let's be honest. But there are moments where it's genuinely, it goes into exactly what Raimi is about with his camp, with his, you said silly earlier, um, the kind of hyper reality of some of his films where it's like sometimes it gets just too ridiculous to be real but it somehow fits within the box of the reality that the film is set up sure like the moment where um where peter and harry are talking in the diner and you know harry's like i'm the other guy and pete like gets up and he goes and he realizes what's going on and the waitress comes over he's like how's your pie sir and he's like so good (laughs) like i just he's doing the most at all times and whether that's with him being like diabolical and sinister or whether he suddenly is like a child after he gets his head beat in like i love that first fight at night between harry and peter yeah like he i I didn't mind him like i know aj let's i know aj is aj and he has very strong (laughs) opinions i actually really enjoyed the trinity of them that triangle it it just made the story so much more interesting all of the stories were interesting and the fact that you get to grow with someone then you know you have you know you have friends who kind of face off at the end in this devolution of their friendship and now it becomes something something sinister uh i i I love i love shit like that so for me that was my favorite part of this entire film i mean you're right i'm not saying you're wrong franco is cranking it up to like 15 oh for sure some you know, some of the camp is there, but the, but when you have two people from, a, you know, at this point we're in the third film and we've spanned right. almost six years, I think at this point or, or close to it. Yeah. And, and at the very end of the film, we have these two who were once close friends, air quotes is, you know, brothers. at the same time they were friends. Yeah. And now it's like, they're kind of facing off yeah. with prop with and properly motivated. You know, right. they're, you know, righteous rage, as I like to say it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I didn't mind it as much as AJ hated it. I'll say that. Yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. That was a- how did you fill out Mary in the middle of that? Like- so th- so this is the interesting thing, because I have talked about in this series how I just don't get the chemistry between Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. It's just mm-hmm. for the first two films, like I just don't see it. And the, you know, if you get into kind of the nitty gritty about their choices narratively, they're super fucking toxic to each other, (laughs) just as people like that scene in Spider-Man 2 where it's like, what are you thinking about? 
you want to tell me something? No, yeah. I can't. Are you sure? Yeah, no, I can't. Okay, well, I'm dating someone, by the way. And I'm like, you are obviously so bad for each other. Just let it go. Just be friends. Like, this isn't going to work. But Sam Raimi, of course, does come to this with sincerity. And that's something that I think is prevalent in all three of these films mm -hmm. where he really wants you to buy this love story. Mm -hmm. And for the first two films, I don't buy it as much as I would like to. This is the first film where I feel like they actually have genuine chemistry. Yeah. And it took them three films to get here, but yeah. McGuire and Dunst actually, they, you know, they don't really riff off each other, but you, their relationship feels real. Their relationship mm -hmm. feels like they are human beings talking to each other. And this was the film where I actually loved their romance as yeah. star-crossed as it seems at times. How did yeah. you feel about that? I did. And you know, it's, I don't know if you and I talked about this way back when we first uh, were talking about films that the inclusion of having kind of an alternate female, uh, there might've been something there that made the audience members pick one or the other for Peter. Fair. And there's this, there's, this, there's this interesting psychological study that's done for films. And what it is, is you have to have a few people that can kind of challenge for a specific role, not so much an alpha role, but so much that you can pick and choose that you want characters to end up with. And if you don't have that, if by default, like if you're the last two people on the planet, you have to really like those two people because if you don't, you're not gonna like the entire story. So the right. inclusion of a young new, uh, she wasn't, would you call her a love interest? Uh, not Mary, not a uh, Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy? It's weird, right? Because like she obviously has the moment where she kisses Spider-Man. Yeah. She's head over heels for him. She is very touchy for just yeah. like, oh, yeah. I'm his lab partner. She's like rubbing his shoulder. I'm sure like, you are. yo, <laughs> you are being very like, I don't know what you're doing here, lady. But yeah. like after the and he does obviously take her on that date to the to the jazz club yeah. but after that after that scene where she's like oh you did all this for her like she disappears from the movie yeah. so okay. again it feels she feels artificial but back to your point well so so even if there is that the opportunity the chance and because mm -hmm. a lot of people who who at this point because again we're this is our third movie so people that maybe weren't caught up on spider-man lord they're interested now and so if you you know for instance look up spider-man love interest i mean you would know it's better than most does gwen stacy come before mary jane so it's interesting right like gwen stacy was introduced before mary jane was in the comics but while gwen stacy was because they meet in uh in college and while Gwen Stacy was like this girl that he was immediately like smitten with because he's like, oh, my God, like she's beautiful. She's kind and she's smart and everything. Mary Jane was specifically introduced to be a love interest. Okay. So there was for a while a love triangle between the three of them. And it was I was always fascinated because I've and I've spoken on this before on the main podcast i'm a gwen stacy guy i just always yeah. have been i respect mary jane but in this instance like it felt 
less organic because like when you're in college like love is just such a weird like messed up thing that you don't even understand most of the time yeah and so love triangles like it makes more sense narratively whereas these people are like adults and the again the inclusion of gwen stacy as it was in the narrative feels like it's not it's not really put there to be like, oh, like we're honoring the source material. It's basically like, okay, this girl was a love interest in the comics. Let's just put her in there to give drama. Like it wasn't honest, right? Like right. It, it wasn't on. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, not knowing that, um, I, I, I kind of felt that because she was so different, then maybe it was more, a little more interesting, a little more depth to, to, to Peter. You know, because mm-hmm. we've seen Kirsten Dunst, who I agree with you. I, I again, I mean, I like Kirsten Dunst as an actress. I don't, Absolutely. I don't, you know, Toby Maguire and her, you're right. It feels very forced. It feels very uh, synthetic and artificial. And I can't think of any other adjectives, adjectives other than cardboard. But, you know, it, it, it's like in this one, I believe there's a finality to it too. Like as an actor, I mean, Eric, can you imagine you're an actor um, being with someone or on set or with people you have to have some type of chemistry with for like six years. And yeah. even if you didn't, the elation of being done with this may have started to bleed into your performance, but <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mind her. I didn't mind the, and so the, we've got a couple different trying you know tr- you know you mentioned as a uh, uh trinity but also we have the gwen peter and um mary jane and i found that really interesting and i kind of and you have these weird venn diagrams where kind of eddie brock comes in right right and so you have these kind of storylines that bleed into other which i think and i don't want to jump off point here is that i think that was this one of this film's biggest problem that there were too many things going on it was like yeah. we couldn't settle on something so so it just became so convoluted but i actually really enjoyed the inclusion of a different female character uh, other than uh, other than mary jane it just felt it was more interesting Later. well and the, and that's that's an excellent point because the thing that sucks about these spider-man films is that for whatever reason when it comes to just these three Spider-Man films specifically, Sam Raimi has a really hard time writing female characters. Mm-hmm. He just does. And it's like, it's not, you know, any kind of like shade on him as like a filmmaker or a storyteller. Sure. It's just like the films themselves by definition and by their presentation are very male forward. And the female characters that are featured are either wives or girlfriends or, you know, love interests or moms. And this, I do enjoy the fact that he decided to bring in another female character. Um, I wish that it had felt like she mattered more because in the film, it really does feel like she's just brought in to cause drama between Peter and MJ because as soon as they wrap that up and Gwen, you know, realizes that, you know, emo Peter is just trying to get back at his ex, she's gone from the film. Yeah. And that's what kind of bothers me. If she had been integrated in the film further on and, you know, maybe, um, maybe Brock or Venom uh, captures both of them and says, okay, you have to choose the same way that like Goblin did with Mary Jane and the kids in the tram on the bridge. Like that could be something that would be interesting and that would tie her into, into the film itself. Um, But as it is like, again, I still like Bryce Dallas Howard as an actress. Of course. And I think her playing Gwen Stacy, she does a great job, but 
there are just certain things about the character that I wish were done better. And speaking of done better, we've we've danced around it almost in a jazzy way. Emo <laughs> Peter, right? So yeah. let's let's talk about this a little bit because we the symbiote is a big part of this film. And for a large part of this film, the symbiote is connected to Peter, which starts to alter his personality a bit. AJ mentioned it earlier, you know, this is supposedly what dork-ass Peter Parker thinks is cool. And in 2007, who knows what is supposed (laughs) to be cool at that point. I lived through 2007. I don't remember what was cool in 2007. (laughs) And I just remember very distinctly this film deciding we are going to commit a solid 15 minutes of our runtime at least to peter parker being a jazz obsessed weirdo who dresses in all black puts his hair hair down puts his hair down and just has to be like the biggest dick in the entire film which is saying something because you do have eddie brock there as well yeah yeah how did you feel about the about the inclusion of the symbiote and the changes that it made to that toby Maguire character see i think that handled properly um would have been really interesting because it, it, it it's parts of yourself i mean we've all i mean this goes back to the mask and jim carrey right where like it it shows you who you can be or who you are who maybe not the best person of you is but a different person of you and again they lean into it right the the cover art we've got the two the the, the two the black and the red suit we've got uh, the introduction it, it obviously even brock who looks similar but different but not much different you know so the symbiote to me it was incredibly interesting i love that shit like you're in a fight with yourself who is the better self of you right. you know and i think that the moralistic argument when you when you get down to the root of what you're looking at that's such an interesting concept and i wish we could get more of that explored in other films as far as your I don't mean to say your, I apologize, Eric. The jazz emo uh, Peter, that was terrible. And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why. You know, because on face value, it's horrible. And, and critical value, it's horrible. But at some point, at some somewhere, somebody very important said, this needs to be in our film. Like somebody, and I mean, the budget was almost, it was $250 million. <sighs> So no one was going to be like, yeah, let's just burn, you know, a couple million off of this show, off of this, this part. I don't know. And I, for the life of me, cannot think why they included it other than to show that he could be a, a worse version of himself. And this is the way they wanted to do that. There's any other way in the cinematic universe that you could have chose, but this is how you chose to tell that part of it. This is what you wanted to show. And Sam Raimi, you know, He's done the evil dead, drag me to hell. He's done a lot of things that have kind of shown how to show rather than tell. And I just, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. This might've been a big fuck you to somebody at some point, but I hated it. Why do you think they chose it? Do you know why? I I gotta know. know? So, so I feel like, and this is pure, uh, pure speculation on my part, but 
I feel like there are a couple different things, a couple different factors that go into this, right? So, like, we know that Sam Raimi was at the behest of the studio, at the behest mm-hmm. of Bobby Ara, the producers, and they were butting heads a bunch on this film. And I think that this definitely wasn't something that was his call. However, we also have to take into account the raindrops can fall on my head sequence from Spider-Man 2. So there is precedence to this whole deal, which is something that you can't ignore. However, we also mentioned the whole, you know, deal with Tobey Maguire being a total dickbag to work with. So there's also that plate spinning on possibly like, oh, this is directly to comment on how terrible Tobey Maguire is a person. (laughs) We're just going to have him act like Tobey Maguire instead of Peter Parker. My God, that's if that's the reason that is brilliant. That makes this movie amazing at that point, if that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) But there's also, I think, because you mentioned it, you know, the, the idea of self versus self is a theme that I think you could very easily see in this film. Sure. And the whole idea behind this film, and especially like rewatching it for this uh, for this series, what I found that was that one of the antagonists alongside Venom, alongside Sandman, was Peter Parker's hubris. Because sure. we've seen him kind of struggle and be constantly beat down. Everybody hates Peter Parker for some reason for the for the first two films. And in this one, everybody loves Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Things are going incredibly well in his life. To the point that he is neglecting the most important parts of his life. That being Mary Jane, that being Aunt May. He doesn't know what's going on in their lives. He is constantly, you know, the choice that he makes to kiss Gwen Stacy with MJ right there doing their kiss is a total dick thing to do. And it's like, dude, you should know better. Like, what's your what's your deal? So I think there is an argument to be made that in this story of, you know, the, you know, the inner self versus the outer self this whole idea of Peter Parker's hubris and Peter Parker's, you know, um, you know, bounce back from constantly being downtrodden, almost overcorrecting itself can be something that's really fascinating to look at and something that's like, okay, this guy has been kicked while he was down for his entire life. What happens now that he's on the right side of things? What happens now that he's on the up and up? And that's really, you know, an examination of what, Peter Parker went through in the early comics because like in the first appearance in the origin of Spider-Man, Peter Parker is, you know, of course, this nerd who's constantly bullied, but he's also like, hey, he literally says in his in his origin comic, like, I love my uncle and my aunt. Everyone else can basically go leap off a bridge like I don't give a fuck about anybody else. And like he has to learn. That's the whole reason he has to learn with great power comes great great responsibility and i think to kind of take that around and make that almost the theme of this film where he has to essentially relearn that is really great and thematically you know as our good buddy george lucas likes to say it rhymes like it's (laughs) it's it's like poetry but it's just not executed as well as i think they really wanted it to be which is well, sad because they have a lot of pieces. Yeah, too many pieces. Because yeah. if if they have what you're talking about, if they focus on that part of it, then that would be a wonderful story. And I think that we get that. I, it's funny. I think that 
as bad as this was, it really served as a blueprint for what not to do. And people yeah. have sat around and said, well, what if they did this instead? And, and sometimes, sometimes you have to know what you don't want to be before you can realize what you want to be. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that this film really played into it because if we're talking about what um, an external mass can do to turn you in on yourself after you having nothing to having everything. And there's that saying too, like, you know, the way you react, is not the, the character is not when you have nothing, but when you have everything, how you treat people. And I think, like you mentioned, that is completely up to the individual. And there's so many intricate pieces that, that you can explore. I mean, um, ancient Romans are great for that. Some of the, some of the emperors, Nero, especially Jesus, some, so how, when you have literally everything, how you treat people around you is the true measure of your character and as you as a person. And so I think that with those themes going on, you could have really, they could have really done something and, you know, strip away all of the excess. You can keep some of the, 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 the Trinity lies, as, as you mentioned, and you could, you might've had a good movie. I mean, you might have had a good movie, but yeah. when you add in, you know, everything else all this extra noise you lose focus and and it's possible to do i mean we've seen it with with other films where there's kind of a little too much going on and if you strip some of this away it might have been to turn a, a decent film into a great film and a good film into an amazing film right and um and uh, imagine the weight though it for just for a moment where it's like we have super spider-man i'm sorry spider-man the first one which broke every record that was known to man yeah. and the second one which was which was received better than the first one so the the burden on the writers the directors the actors even just to kind of make sure that it's bigger and better and right we hear that too right it's got to be bigger it's got to be it's got to be more explosions more fire <laughs> it's got to be all these things more right. and sometimes it, maybe not and and so i think that this film kind of collapsed under its own ideas and not yeah. so much the execution but but the idea and so you know it's it's it is interesting it, it really is and yeah and it's uh, it's it's unfortunate because there are like you said there are redeeming qualities in this film yeah you know we talked about you know the relationships between peter between harry and mj there is a super hype moment during the final fight when Harry decides to help Pete. Mm -hmm. He shows up and he, you know, you know, pumpkin bomb into the giant Sandman. He flies in, you know, Pete has like his mask torn favorite look whenever Pete's Spider-Man. You got to have the mask torn up. Yeah. And <laughs> Pete or uh, Harry like reaches down their hands hit and you get that fucking like da -da 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 -da, like that spider-man theme like going it's like okay let's do this yeah. um stuff like that stuff like the crane rescue as we already talked about pretty much any sandman scene really yeah. you know from the birth of the sandman that we see to any of the sandman fights that are super well choreographed um those really work and this has what is it's not my favorite stanley cameo in all of the marvel films but it's the one that means the most it's you know right at the beginning where they're watching the whole you know screen of spider-man you know being amazing and pete is just kind of like standing there looking at it and then he kind of looks over and stan lee's just standing next to him watching like the screen of like all the news coverage of spider-man you know getting the key to the city and stuff and he turns to him and he's just like I guess one person can make a difference. Mm. Enough said. 
and he kind of walks off. I ball my eyes out any single <laughs> any any time that I see that scene because yeah. it genuinely pulls at my heartstrings. Yeah, it did when I first saw it. Even more so now, after Stan has passed, like it is legit one of my favorites. Um, and then again, like you get this great, uh, you get this great ending yeah, for those characters. It's good. It's you really know, good. Harry sacrifices himself to save Pete. You know, you have mj and pete like reconcile and the the absolute the ending of this film is one of my favorite endings to a superhero film and like it's weird because like it a lot of people can say you know it doesn't feel earned you know they already went through so much and it's like whatever but having your first two films end with this like triumphant like final swing through the city horns are blaring american flags are going bald eagles are shouting and (laughs) doing the whole thing fireworks going off they're playing the national anthem (laughs) like you get all this and then the ending of the story the end of the trilogy Mm -hmm. is mary jane in this jazz club you know just singing you know i'm through with love and peter comes in no words are said between the two of them She stops, the two of them come together, he reaches out his hand, and she takes it. And the two of them, you know, reconcile. It's beautiful, it's profound, it's an incredible ending to a film that I wish was better. And I wish had been good and as good as this ending was. Because there are flashes of brilliance in this. 100%, yes. And it makes them shine bigger because the film is not as great as a whole but it also makes you wish that the film was better because you know they had the tools necessary to make a better film that's a great point like when you it's easy to find a really good spots in a mediocre film because the film is mediocre and like this thing just glares and looks wonderful and that's a wonderful point eric that's really good because there are point there are moments in this film I love the, the the fight at the very end. And let's go back to the the CGI on Sandman. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. Like the CGI, so well done. Yeah, what, I mean, think we're fucking doing sand. Like we're talking about water. You know, it, it's just it's one thing when the and by the way, Frozen's water, Frozen Two. It's it's incredible. They actually did all their CGI. Every single like movement of the water was done digitally. Artistically, but, Frozen Two is a masterpiece. One hundred. Just say this. And, uh, and so, but here, I mean, we're, this is fucking 15 years before that, more. So yeah. I think I loved how they animated that. And I thought the visual effects for this, because again, we have to, I want to touch on that too. The visual effects in this were my favorite because of the way it melded. It felt like yes. human component and digital component almost perfectly. And then, and, and, you know, for me, that's, it was, it was, I was never taken out of it. And I felt really compelled and it just, it just vibed for me. For sure. And that's something that Sam Raimi always made a point to do in these films is that, you know, and it's I can't take credit for this. This was pointed out to me. But I, you know, going back and rewatching this with that knowledge in mind, there's something fascinating that he always does, because there's always, you know, whenever there's like a big CGI, you know, thing, whether it's Peter swinging, whether it's, you know, the Sandman doing his thing, it always ends with a practical shot. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, 
Peter will be swinging through the city. It's very clearly CG, but when he lands, he pops up and it's Peter. It's Tobey Maguire in the suit. That's who it is. Yeah. You know, speaking of the Sandman, you know, that first fight that they have in the armored truck, mm-hmm. right? The moment where, you know, they meet for the first time and they're like slugging at each other in this armored truck and he goes to punch him and it goes through his through his chest because he's sand the way that they went about that is so cool because they they found this retired boxer right who was an amputee and so when they are doing that they put him in the spider-man suit for the stunt so that's why he's like throwing haymakers and then when he goes to punch him because he's an amputee his arm stops at his chest like the inventive like I didn't know shit that. that they did for this film. It's so cool. Yeah. And it really, again, you know, speaks to Sam Raimi as a filmmaker. Sure. And absolutely. his, you know, his ability to essentially make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And <laughs> even though this film doesn't really, you know, turn into a sandwich I'd ever want to eat. Sure. There are definite bright spots and you can yeah. see him working as best as he can right. to make this as good a film as he could. There's definitely leftovers. If you were hungry, you'd warm up and eat. For sure. You know what I mean, that that's, it's, it's not, it's not yeah terrible. I didn't know that they, he had such an issue with the, with the studio. Like to me, that's knowing that now and, and from how I just felt about watching it, it makes a lot of sense that some of those less fleshed out characters felt like they were like, well, let me write 20 pages in the script and kind of pepper them out and, and then it'll pass. And we've already got a, we've already got a release date. We've already got our yeah. budget. Like, you know, so, so that, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And that's unfortunate because Sam Raimi can really, I mean, if you've seen drag me to hell, like mm-hmm. evil dead's one thing, but drag me to hell is one of those films that you create your world. It is ridiculous, but Absolutely. it's grounded in the ridiculousness of itself. Like, yeah there's a level of where it does take itself very seriously. And it is scary despite the ridiculousness. And so I feel like his trilogy here, because I think we can start talking about it as a whole, mm-hmm. has those elements of it. And I think had the studio not interfered, and again, of course, you know, creative differences, right? I mean, we're going to give you a quarter of a billion dollars. You got to make it our way, or you yeah. can make your own movie on your budget. For so, like $20. Yeah, there you go, right? Um, so it would have been interesting to see how that would have panned out. But I, I'm actually... I'm glad there wasn't one after this because where super, and, I, and I'm not going to go to our, our, our topic, I promise. After Spider-Man 3, where superhero films went was through the roof. Yeah. I think like that was, I think we, obviously we needed that, but we needed the lows more so than the highs because, For sure. you know, you talked about Iron Man. I mean, I think. The very next year. Yeah. yeah. Iron Man and Dark Knight in the same year. So. It's and two very different stories, obviously told, told completely differently. Um, so, but but yeah, I think Spider Man Three was a for me for me was a very mixed bag. Um, but there were there were nuggets of beauty in this film, and for me, it goes from the acting. I love Pete. Sure. I, uh, you know, I I like Harry Osborn. I like the way that they kind of came together after almost killing each other in some parts in the film, and 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 I I just I really enjoyed that that story and i know i'm just gonna hate it but i enjoyed it you know i i, I that's I, right he's I gone really he's, that's he, right we can talk he's not here we can, we can talk shit as much as we want <laughs> yeah but no i i think again there are definitely as you so eloquently said there there are nuggets in here that really do show that this this film and this trilogy as a whole was made with a lot of heart a lot of sincerity mm-hmm. and was also made with a lot of money 
because now <laughs> we are here. It is time for Chris's number corner. So this, you know, Spider-Man, it, it, it was going to be hard to top Spider-Man 1. It was. And Spider-Man right. 2 didn't do it, even though it was critically received better. There, It was just going to be too challenging. So a $258 million budget, let's call it 260. So a quarter of a billion dollars. And, and again, this is for, this is from 2007. So I don't know what the adjusted number what is there. Although I don't know if you saw, but inflation is at 6% this year. Good God. Um, so imagine you take it back almost 15 years. Um, so there, there was money there to, that they gave into it because I think that everybody kind of believed that it would do well in terms of, the gross north north in North America, it was the weakest of the three, um, in by really, yes. So the first Spider Man got uh, four hundred and three. This is this is in its entire run in North America, four hundred three million. Which, right. you know, we know all the records that are broke. Spider Man two again, three seventy three. So it earned less, but it was received better. So we that wasn't necessarily a loss, even though you know a couple, you know, ten or twenty, you know, twenty million dollars. It's Sony money. We're Chunk good. change. Yeah. But Spider-Man 3 on its budget uh, earned 336. And normally that wouldn't be a big deal, but the budget was so high that yeah. in its entire run, um, it only cleared, and this is going to sound obscene, and I don't, don't mean it to be that way. It only cleared only 100 million more than its budget, which conversely isn't great because the metric in, in even is going to be what, what Spider-Man 1, 1 earned over its budget. And it was just astronomical. Worldwide, however, worldwide, Spider-Man 3 was the highest grossing, banking almost a billion dollars. And it's like the highest grossing Spider-Man film, right? It's it is the second one. Do you know what the first really? one is? Really? Yeah. Do you know okay. what the first one is? If it's one we haven't talked about yet, I don't, I don't it's know. one we haven't talked about yet. Okay, let's we'll, we'll, okay, we'll hold we'll, off then. Okay. So we're gonna, so we're, is, we're gonna leave that leave that for you listener <laughs> and it's and by the way it's second by like a lot so really? but it's still number two and there's no shame in being number two almost a billion dollars 900 million dollars worldwide exactly for all the shit that aj has talked and the <laughs> things that we've picked out right all the threads for sure it's still uh, 900 million dollars and so how do you measure that in terms of is this success or failure because sony executives like cool laugh at the jazz club scene we still got nine got your money. There you go. It is the second highest grossing Spider-Man. And that's with two and uh, you know, one and two already being out all the records that one broke. It's still, it's still earned less than this one. So wow. that's something to be said in, in, in Marvel at, at, at the gravity that Spider-Man holds. Like there, yeah. the, I mean, it's got, a, it, it, that's a huge haymaker that, that that franchise and that character can throw and we see it and we're going to talk about it going forward um you know but it, it's it's just an astronomical amount so this absolutely what, and and, you know. and all of that money resulted in one award for this film <laughs> this film won one award it was nominated for quite a few which is weird interesting but the one award that it won was the golden trailer award for oh best summer blockbuster we're familiar if you uh <laughs> checked back in our um into the Snyderverse series. We're familiar with the Golden Trailer Awards. <laughs> and they are a metric for trailers of a film. 
and this one did have a kick-ass trailer i do remember the trailer very distinctly but as we're wrapping up here uh chris any any final thoughts on the film and then what would you give it out of 10 you know, I think the biggest thing, and, and I don't want to beat a dead horse about it, but there are really good parts of this film. And I mean, it's not nearly as good as the first one and definitely not nearly as good as the second one, but there are parts that have gravitas to them and, and you can enjoy them because you're 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 on board for the trilogy at this point. Like you've invested time and money in these characters and these actors. And it's the same reason that, you know, I think the, the MCU is so successful because you you gravitated towards those characters and actors and you throw them together. And so we got that here. Sure. And so- you know, I think that there are redeemable parts in this film, not enough to read in the entire film, but for the characters and for the arcs in here, it wasn't terrible for, for as most, as, as much as shit as we give it. Um, <laughs> I do love the idea of having another female in there. And I think that's why Into the Spider-Verse did so well. I love mm-hmm. how they kind of brought different, especially the female character in that as well. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard to look past if 70% of something is bad and 30% of it is good, then it's bad by the numbers. Yeah. Like there is no, you know, you could have a moral victory. Sure. So for me, I, I got to say, it's basically a hard three out of 10 for me. That's three kind of, of my, you know, that's, that's, that's my wrap up. What about you? How do you feel about it? Well, I think you, you make an excellent point. You know, there's, there's this whole idea of there, when it shines, it shines bright, mm-hmm. but having so much that you having so much muck that you have to get through to get to those shining moments is frustrating especially when you can you know pop in spider-man 2 and just get all these incredible moments right that are in the film and there are definitely films that are better than this as we go along in the series um i think in the you know i kind of did a a valley deal with this where mm. again when i first saw this i was 14 or 15 and i loved it when i first saw you it. loved it i loved it when oh. i first saw it when i came out of the theater okay, um, okay okay but as time went on and i yeah. you know watched it a few more times it got worse mm-hmm. and then kind of over the years i've softened on it <laughs> a little bit and i think watching it this time i was able to appreciate a lot a lot of it there is still a bunch that is wrong with this this is very easily the worst out of the first three films Mm -hmm. no no question in that at all um and i do think that when it's bad it's bad but as like this ending chapter and as this you know culmination of everything that had come before we talked about the things that worked with it we talked about it you know the things that didn't work and obviously there were things that didn't work in previous films that did work in this film so i am going to go a little surprising i think and i'm I'm gonna give it a solid five out of ten i think that okay there's there are redeeming qualities of it but like you said you know for me i guess if we're going by the numbers there half of it is really good but half of it is still real real bad and you can't overlook that you can't overlook a really bad villain you can't overlook terrible pacing you can't overlook there being too many characters and too many threads going through here to make sense of so for me five out of ten 
Fair. Not as terrible as I've had it. You know, if you if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, fucking one out of 10 worst film ever. <laughs> but like it's 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 grown on me over time. And I think yeah. that there are, again, very much redeeming qualities about this. So, you know, what's funny real about that, too. I think that we're in a stage right now. And again, we're looking at things as adults who right. have an understanding of uh, cinematic value and whatnot. I think a lot of films right now are people are really high coming out of them. And then when you examine them, it's like, I think Star Wars. And again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Star, a Star Wars like super fan and I'm also not a hater. I'm kind of in the middle so I can enjoy it for what it is. But right. Star Wars, when it comes out, people will mostly love it. And then once the gleam comes off, it starts to be like, well, Halloween is a great example. I'm a big horror guy. Halloween yeah. is a great example. The most recent Halloween people liked for a little bit, but then like a couple weekends went by like, oh my God, that was, that, that wasn't good. So <laughs> this film, you know, you kind of get that. And I think you have a knee jerk reaction. If you go to a movie, you probably want to like it. You're going because you want to like it. Right. And then as it kind of sits with you, like you mentioned, like, well, you know what, did I like it? Or did it just like the idea of maybe this was happening? So but I'm actually really glad you went, we went going back and watching it made me appreciate certain parts that I did not as I when I was young watching it for the first time. Yeah. And I, I think the most fascinating thing, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I could spend the next two hours talking about it. <laughs> I think the most fascinating thing about like fan culture in superhero mm -hmm. movies, especially is like the, the cool thing now is to be like, Oh man, this is really cool when something comes out. And then two months later be like, man, that was shit. Yeah. Like this is the fucking worst thing. You remember when everyone was universally like WandaVision is the most visionary thing we've seen out of the MCU in years. Yeah. And then now it's like fucking WandaVision was the just a piece of shit <laughs> low fucking F tier. Like I don't get that. I don't yeah. understand that mentality. If you like something, it's okay to just like something. Yeah. So but that's my my soapbox. I love. I I would love to talk about that because I think Jurassic the 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 one that um, Chris Pratt was in, not the second one, the first. I think it's Jurassic something or other. Can't remember what it's called. That got a lot of like it's back because it made like a billion dollars. Oh like, yeah, it was up there with Fast. You know the Fast. You know whatever. Fast and Furious. Oh yeah, Fast and Furious. We jumped on that. But when this, but as people examined it, it was basically a rehashing of the first one, and therefore opened the doors for toxic fan culture to come out. You know, and so. Yeah. Um, second Star Wars. Uh, I can't think of it right now. Last uh, Jedi. Thank you very much. That absorbed a shit ton of toxic fan culture, and I think absolutely that, undeservedly which, which so. Is, I mean, which, it's not. Well, I I love that film. Okay. Yeah. I really Ryan Johnson love I mean, that film, and it's it's you know kind of sad that they never made a third film to follow up with it. Yeah. It's sad that they never decided like, hey, let's finish out the story, and they just kept it at those two films, but. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there is a certain amount of unhealthy fan culture that didn't exist yeah. at this time in 2007. Right. You know, and that's, you know, the modern day, you know, people call it, you know, stan culture. And it's, I, I don't want this to turn into like two okay, old men I shouting probably, at cloud, uh, no, I, but no, not. but, but I definitely think that there is a certain amount of, you know, people are, people are slowly coming around to this film. They're starting to see like the, the the diamonds in the muck yeah. and i think that as more time goes on and especially with all the hype around toby mcguire possibly it's never it hasn't been proven yet that he's coming back for no way home um people are gonna look back on these films a little bit more fondly for it 
Yeah. Imagine if he does drop in, what that will do for the for the viewership. And instantly the- goes, now dig on this. <laughs> That's his exit. He just I, go, I don't, he's just hitting I, the finger guns. Oh my God. I hope not. I want to talk about the trailer, but we'll talk about that one afterwards. But um, but for yeah, sure. man, I I I I'm I'm so glad we got we went back and watched this and watched the trilogy because again, there were things to love, a lot of stuff to hate, but it wasn't as hateful. I remember it for sure. Totally agree. So that is going to wrap it up for this edition of Spidey December. And uh, you know what's coming up next. Next time we're going to be diving into the amazing Spider-Man, the yes. debut of Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. Emma Stone is Gwen Stacy, helmed by Mark Webb. And we're going to be diving into the gritty, realistic reboot that came at probably the wrong time. <laughs> so... <laughs> Tune in for that next time. Uh, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. We had AJ Kincaid, Chris Carter, and we will see you next time. <laughs>